Hello, welcome to The BIM Student. I'm your host Chetna Chauhan. Our today's guest is a perfect example of how someone with constant self-improvement and resilience can not only get better in their career, but also stay ahead of curve by embracing new technological developments. Ever since 2003, he has been involved with BIM implementation through continuous research, analysis and discussion. He has trained numerous companies in BIM and visual programming for Revit. He has led many companies to move from a strictly AutoCAD shop to a BIM shop. Additionally, with his strong background in contracts, proposals and zoning submissions and been working with multi-residential and commercial projects, Currently, he's leading WZMH Architects BIM Pursuits as a senior BIM manager. He is also a regular speaker at conferences like Autodesk University, where he makes highly technical and complicated topics like generative design not only interesting, but also highly engaging. I would also give him credit for suggesting the impossible questionnaire section at the end of this podcast. Because of this section, our podcast has not only become really educational and entertaining, but it has also pushed me and my team to research a lot more than just the realm of BIM implementation. Please welcome Dennis Dixon. Welcome to the podcast, Dennis. I'm so glad you said yes on joining us. And um, because we are all learning, I'm really excited to learn some new things from you today. And I'm I'm pretty sure my my listeners would be too. So welcome. Hey, nice to be here. Thank you for having me on board. I've been looking forward to this for a few weeks now. So yeah, thanks. So let's jump into it right away. And I want to have a quick overview of uh, your background, and your journey and how did you get stumbled on BIM? Yeah, sure, I'll give you a, as quick as I can anyway. Uh, I grew up in a small town, so didn't have much to do. So when I was eight years old, I, my dad had uh, AutoCAD version 12 on his Windows 3.1. And mm -hmm. while my sisters were learning Reader Rabbit, I was sitting there trying to draw out hockey rinks in my, uh, on the computer. So eventually went from there and uh, throughout high school, my teacher gave me a CNC manual and said, you know, go learn this and learn AutoCAD. And, and then I took it and learned AutoCAD and Georgian and became a teacher from our night courses and started teaching AutoCAD when I was 16. So from there, I gravitated over and started doing construction and working and created my own design firm. Um, and then from that, I had jumped into Kirkor Architects as a uh, as a BIM manager and BIM captain, and from there I got picked up to go work as uh, as a BIM consultant for Imagine Technologies, which uh, really just springboarded my career in BIM and allowed me to grow out a Dynamo network as being one of the first Canadian Dynamo instructors. And then on top of that, just uh, really building up a North American repertoire for anything BIM related. And from there, that's just where it's gone. It's been crazy. Amazing. Amazing. And um, so now you're working in WZMH as a BIM manager. Do you want to highlight briefly that what are your pursuits as a BIM manager at WZMH? Yeah, definitely. So when I started at um, WZMH three years ago, uh, I was brought on as a consultant and WZMH was looking to enhance and take their Revit workflows and do something completely 
it crazy by taking their whole process from AutoCAD and converting it entirely to a Revit shop. So that has happened in a two year time period. And not only are we doing that, but we've just established what we call our WAC committee, which is our WZMH hackers, which is oh. a, uh, a division that does programming and, um, and conceptual design in Dynamo or Rhino and Grasshopper. Uh, we have uh, one, two programmers in house that are doing actual coding behind the scenes for a bunch of stuff. And we essentially just wanted to take all of our 150, 170 employees and start getting them using automation and efficiency. So a lot of crazy, crazy stuff going on. Amazing, that's exciting. I wanna see what's happening in that WAC committee someday. Um, <laughs> you might. Yes. Coming down to our next uh, section uh, mm -hmm. is BIM and generative design. So. First of all, what exactly is generative design? Because you know it, I know it, but the audience, they still don't have a very good idea what exactly generative design is. Yeah, so generative design, I think gets confused sometimes. There's, um, there's like say for instance, visual programming or conceptual programming versus generative design. There's two very different worlds. So um, programming or, or conceptual programming and a Revit world, let's say for instance, um, is a very linear process. It's meant to uh, create fast ways to do commands. Generative design is all about options. It's being able to hone down and sharpen something to the most even point that it can by using hundreds, if not thousands of iterations of, an, of a solution to find the best fit for the client. So generative design is essentially an option management technique to create the best result. This is by far the two to the point uh, definition I've ever heard. Uh, and that includes I do a lot of research. So uh, thank you. Uh, that actually my mom may be able to you know understand what generative design <laughs> is from that. Um, Show her the video. It'll be be informative. <laughs> okay, we, we will see. We will see. Uh, so when we are talking about option management and creating the best fit for a or a best solution for project or a problem in front of us. Where do you see the role of information in that? Okay, so information does play a massive part in generative design. And one of the misconceptions of generative design is it it's not a one-click process. So a lot of the time you're seeing the surface of generative design on the internet and you see what the end result is. But the reality of generative design is the fact that it is customized to every experience. So there's a lot of work that goes up front to generating this, and there's a lot of work that involves the information behind it. Mm -hmm. So you have to build up a strategy and a database of all of the variables that you need for your project. And that it requires a very, very studious process of storyboarding. And that is super important to generative design. So data is that big, big mandatory piece. Oh, okay. So what I understand out of it is that if we don't have data or we don't have, I would say exact parameters to input the data, we really cannot achieve generative design options. Exactly. Like if you were to ask for, you know, a perimeter of this object mm -hmm. and ask it to define what's inside it, mm -hmm. you would say that I need a length and width of this object to generate the very different ideas that I have. Okay. But once you introduce something like this, 
which mm -hmm. doesn't have a length and width, it ruins the whole experience. So you have to do homework to cater to every experience. Okay. Okay. So that means we are all, um, like it or not, eventually we are moving into uh, times where generative design might just become our first step onto where we are going into design, right? Exactly. Yep. So, so there are a lot of designers who'd be listening to this. How can they benefit from gener generative design? So generative design has a massive benefit for for workflow and uh, flow dynamics. And that's mm -hmm. and not just that, but for spatial analysis. So let's say generative design uh, comes into play for code analysis for a building and how that relates to certain areas that are defined very clearly in Ontario Building Code. Mm -hmm. Well, generative design can help you find locations for those and create those spaces and furthermore actually fill those spaces with the correct information according to a program so for designers all that work of having to block out a floor plan according to best fit scenarios mm -hmm. can be removed off their shoulders so i mean yes even right down to the massive scale of a development uh, for companies like um uh, spacemaker who have just autodesk just acquired like being able to take something that they need fast answers to for feasibility mm -hmm. and take that off their shoulders, at least at a rough scale, mm -hmm. that takes, you know, a week, two weeks worth of work off of their shoulders. It's very handy. So, Okay. And this is when we are talking about mega projects or big projects, how do you see generative design being applied to smaller projects, smaller commercial projects, single family projects? How do you see generative design applying to that? Well, I, the good thing is, is about smaller projects, they tend to have a lot of similar applications. So like, for instance, a, a site plan, you have a brand new site that you purchased in Toronto. It, that mm. site is being used to build a residential home. Are you not being oh. very optimistic about that yeah. brand new site in Toronto? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're going to minor variants right away. So that's okay. But the, you have these constraints and these constraints are your property line. So right away, if you can take sections of Toronto and be able to have, let's say the city of Toronto creates their open data source and provides all of the metrics for all of the different zoning areas. This is mm -hmm. hypothetical. Mm -hmm. Well, what if we were to reach in and grab that data mm -hmm. and be able to say, this is the square footage of home I want according to the price I can pay. Mm -hmm. And these are the metrics that I want to fill in for a rough idea of a building type. Mm -hmm. Then it would just block out and create the generic shape of the house so that you can apply for minor variants right away and get that going. So Great. things like that. So Great. that's, you could do whole subdivisions like that if you wanted to. So. Yeah, I, that is, that is something I didn't think of. What I think thought of more was like, uh, uh, floor plan options and, um, yeah, even uh, that. Uh, I mean, where do I put my staircase? Yeah, and, uh, and it all trickles down and it yes. really does because you can create uh, basic programs for and, and that's what I mean, like layouts. There's probably about 100 different layout options you can use for a house. And, and I'm just being obviously there's way more. You can design whatever you want. But when it comes down to it, like square footage, area limitations, stuff like that, you can program it in. So right, right it's there. So again, when we come back to generative design, I feel that you cannot start from scratch. You need to have a backend support to it. Exactly. And this all comes down to data mining as well. And mm -hmm. we're at the we're at the very beginning of generative design. 
So data is being compiled at the moment. And mm -hmm. uh, even on buildings that are in full BIM life cycles, or uh, we are taking that data now at the tail end of facilities management and using it to better inform our designs so that we can unplug that data in later on. So machine learning and the technology that goes in from data mining is all going to carry through to generative design later. So. Okay. Uh, do you have advice for somebody, uh, uh, let's say a company, who wants to take advantage of uh, generative design to how to start the process. Yeah, definitely. So start small. First, educate a small portion of your company on the thought process behind programming and generative design. So how to storyboard out your ideas, how to take those giant ideas and squeeze them down to something that's actually attainable. Mm -hmm. So don't get your head out of the clouds start small, work on something that's easy to use geometrically first, mm -hmm. and then build up from there because you're going to take on too much and you'll find that the variables get overwhelming when you start adding things. So help you speed up the really crazy processes that are easy to accomplish first. Mm -hmm. And then later on, you can tackle the more complex issues. You'll find yourself making money really quickly. Perfect. So we have a generative uh, design tool inside Revit now, but if say, somebody has to start from a, from scratch, w other than generative design inside Revit, what can you use? What tools can so, we use? There are various tools that you can use within within Rhino. Let's mm -hmm. say mm -hmm. I would say Rhino and Grasshopper are the two, um, the two the combination that you would use in instead of your Revit and Dynamo workflow. So. Generative design within Revit, you can program it and create your own studies and inputs and outputs however you like. The same thing goes with uh, many add-ins that come with uh, with Rhino. Um, I don't have them off the top of my head because I've been to many of the lessons myself, but it's still it's still crazy. I mean, yeah, and now now yeah, it's with integrations now with Revit and Rhino with Rhino inside coming out and Rhino Seven. Who knows? Right, it's going to be right. crazy. Yes. Um, and would you suggest somebody to, let's say, let's say in your own company, suggest somebody to just specialize in generative design? Or would you say everybody who's on design team needs to know uh, how it works? So you'll have to take it in two stages. You'll have your high level, which will understand the pieces, will understand what the end result is. Um, and But they also have to know that there are there are limitations to what they're doing according to time. Mm -hmm. um, yes, you can spend two to three weeks to build the front end to save yourself two months of work. Mm -hmm. But if you end up spending two months of work to create a two week, um, you know, return, mm -hmm. it, it's not worth it. So yes, they do have to understand that adding too many variables to a generative design application can cause it to be worse um, mm. or essentially you know, when you talk to the more technical staff, mm -hmm. they can fill you in on what their limitations are. Okay. Okay. Great. Uh, but I want this webinar to be more interesting and more informative. So now it's my time to educate you. And that, <laughs> and that comes down to our impossible questionnaire. And uh, I have five questions Ooh. and these have been, um, put down with an intention that the guests should not be able to answer this. So, <laughs> so me and my team have, we've, we've worked 
really towards that goal. Uh, I'm scared. So, uh, okay, let's start with our impossible questionnaire. Uh, question number one: Other than Navis Works, give me the name of at least five clash detection or interference checking programs. Ooh, okay, so we have our ABC Pro, which now has model coordination. We had the BIM 360 Coordinate, which uh, we've had previously. We got BIM 360 Glue, which had the clash detection. Uh, Revisto, and I believe we've got one that was purchased a while ago. Oh, BIM Track. Let's go BIM Track. Oh, oh, okay, okay. You're doing good, man. Uh, well, I have 11 others. Like, these were on my list. I had like Solibri, Trimble Connect, Verity, uh, Clash MEP, Fusor, Sintu. Oh, Fusor, that was the one I was thinking of. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sintu, BIM Vision, and then there is Verify 3D by I've Zima. never heard of that one. See? Uh, there we go. Yeah, there, there are like quite a few out there. It's just that the company who's better with marketing gets a better share of users. Ah, okay, gotcha. Uh, okay, the next one is, um, you're aware of uh, ISO 19650? Yes. Okay, so ISO 19650 in total has five parts and it has a transition guide. So, you know, it moved from B British Standards 1192 to ISO 1650 back in 2018. Um, so, which part of ISO 19650 talks about or supplies information management requirements for operational phase of assets. That would be the AIM, the Asset Information Model, I believe, where yes. we'd be talking about turnover. Yeah. E, uh, no, this is. I'm not talking about turnover. I'm talking about operations. So once you've turned operations. it over. Okay, so we've got we've got the project information model, we've got the asset information model, we've got the, and then there's three or different models after that. There was um, the operations, operations and, information, yeah, information requirement, yeah. Yeah, 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 which yeah, is yeah. also called, yeah, which is also yeah. called, which is also part three. Yeah. Okay. Part three. I gotta remember that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, got okay. me, yeah? Yes! Yeah, I like it. It's tough. Okay. I, I'm okay. It's going to get tougher. Uh, good, good. Right. You, uh, so, you know about Uniclass 2015? Barely. Uniclass 2015 is the specification system that has been designed for industry and it has uh, a number, an alphanumeric number for almost everything that you can think about in a construction project from roles and responsibilities to mm -hmm. numbers for like a 3D view. Okay, so uh, do you know Uniclass 2015 number for BIM execution plan? Ooh, BIM execution plan. Um, general requirements. Oh, see, I'm all, I'm going off a of master format. I'm drawing a blank. I can't help you. you you're going one. to <laughs> you're, you're going to the master format, right? Yeah, yeah. I would I would have to because I'm thinking like zero one general requirements or something like that, but not yeah, even close. No. So um, okay, so I'll explain. So it has different parts yeah. uh, where BIM execution plan and all of this come into the project management. Yeah. So it starts with a prefix PM. PM, okay. okay. Gotcha. Underscore forty is everything BIM related stuff. Gotcha. Okay, or I would say not even BIM, but the drawings and the documents related stuff. 
And then underscore 60 underscore 08. Obviously, that you do not know the uh, the Uniclass 2015 number for a 2D floor plan and a 3D view. I would say no. No, I do okay. not. <laughs> so for a 2D floor plan drawing, it's a PM underscore 40 underscore 40 underscore 01. See, I can't yeah. remember it even after the podcast. I will have to there read it go. from there. Yeah, and, and, and for a 3D view, because 3D view is, it's not considered a drawing. Mm-hmm. It's like a view and it's part of CAD. Yeah. So it starts with a ZZ. ZZ underscore 85 underscore okay. 05. So right. that's, so that's, uh, so there are tools out there in the market which will make it easy for you to specify this and to put it in a BIM execution plan, all of that. Yeah. Uh, but you've got to do things old school way. Yeah, no, this is good. This is very great information. Okay, so next question. Sure. And this is related to heavy timber construction. Ooh. In heavy timber frame construction, what is a bent? A bent. Oh, I should know this because I've done heavy timber for so many years. See, uh, have to do with the way a dormer is designed and a roof, roof structure. Okay, so a bent is a plane of columns, beams, rafters, and braces that are joined together and erected at the same time. Oh, okay, so, so that's, that's in the that's, timber you see the yes, frame. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. So I was close. I just couldn't get the, the thing in. So anyway. Yeah. Right. I mean, even if you would have named like three members joining and, you know, something gotcha, close gotcha. to it, I would have given it to you. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. These are good uh, questions, by the way. <laughs> thank you. Uh, okay, the last question. Sure. Um, and that's a systems related question, building systems related question. Ooh. Uh, in cooling mode, a refrigerant flows in what direction? In a cooling mode, the refrigerant flows in what direction? Can you be more specific? Uh, so let's say an HVAC system in which you have a, a, a condenser, an evaporator, um, a furnace, all of that stuff. How would a coolant move? How would a coolant move? Like from oh. which part to which part it would move? Oh, got you. From. Uh... Coolant would go from, oh man, my Bill, Bill Alderson is screaming in my ear from Conestoga College right now. I can feel it. That's a shout out to Bill. Um, you, you're getting there. You're getting yeah. there. I want you to yeah. have this one. I know. I know. I'm just, I'm trying to piece apart the, uh, the unit in my head right now. Uh, so we have the... We have it from from the coils to the condenser, I believe. From ca- condenser to the heat exchanger, I believe. Oh, no, I you're remember. nearly there. Oh. To, okay, from condenser Sorry, to cool. evaporator. Evaporator, yeah, yeah. And it and, and it has to pass through an expansion valve. Gotcha, gotcha. There we go. Yeah, you're testing me hard on this one. <laughs> Good. This is fun. This is actually really fun. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I think we're towards the end of the podcast and Perfect. I'm so thankful again. Um, I wish this could be in person, but hopefully in next few months, things get better and we have an in-person, uh, in-studio yeah. recording. Definitely. I'm going to do my studying for the next round. You watch. Yes. <laughs> and I'm going to twist the questions. Oh, good, 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 good. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Th- thank you so much. And hopefully we have another episode soon with you. Awesome.